The following podcast is sponsored by Structure Tech. It bugs me when you hear about kickbacks. Just that word. The bad word. This is the hairs on my neck. The bad word. Yeah. Referral fee. Is that better? Eh, I hear kickback. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, alongside Tessa Murray and Ruben Saltzman. As always, your three-legged stool coming to you from the Northland, talking all things houses, home inspections, and whatever else might be rattling around up in our brain on a given day. We are very excited to have Kevin with us. Kevin's back from Spectora, and he is going to be talking to us today about home inspection software and a variety of other things. But we're going to dive into a very special milestone that Spectora has reached just in the last week or so. And Kevin's smiling. You can't see him smile, but I'm going to let him unveil all of that. All I know is uh, that's crushing it once we get to that point. And uh, we're going to dig into some other things. It sounds, Kevin, like you guys are making some changes, some updates to the software. And and I was hoping to dig into that a little bit with you today. So here it is, everybody. Kevin Wagstaff from Spectora. Sounds good. Honored to be back. I don't know how many repeat guests you have. Thanks for having me back. We're huge Kevin fans, Kevin. You know, Spectora fans. We just had the IEB conference, which Ruben, I don't know if you could ever make up the friendship that was made with me and and your team. Maybe next time. So sad to miss it. So sad to miss it. Oh, there'll man. be more. There'll be more. Did you know that Kevin is like an epic volleyball player? Well, I know it, he used to play, but uh, I didn't know you're he was like, epic. You're like almost pro level or something, Kevin. I, well, Ruben, I played I played semi-pro basketball. That was my sport. So basketball was my main sport. And then I switched over to volleyball like about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. But no, the story, we were, in IEB, we were at the IEB conference and my co-founder who got me into sand volleyball. So sand doubles volleyball. So there's only two of you out there. You have to cover the whole court. Really exhausting. A lot of people would not punish themselves in that way. We were like, hey, Austin has a really cool sand volleyball scene. We have a few friends that moved down there. So we were like, hey, should we tack on an extra day in Austin and just try and find some good volleyball? So we actually reached out to a friend. He knew of another friend that was running a tournament on the south end of Austin at this bar that has sand volleyball courts. So we found, we went down there and found some pretty high level sand volleyball at the end of the trip. And some people from the conference, Tessa, Eric came out, had a drink at the bar and watched, and we all kind of hung out. It was a really cool environment. Oh, I didn't even hear about this. So Kevin, you and your brother played and how many people were you guys playing against? So there's, it was like a 16 or 20 person kind of tournament where you do like a round robin, you play against everybody they keep track of points and then they rank you and so it's this kind of like king of the beach format and it came down to the final two players and guess who they were kevin and his brother (laughs) yeah (laughs) had to play against big brother and uh and he beat me of course as he usually does but it was close he beat you oh you know what it was so tragic we had to leave because our uber came and we didn't want to have to wait another hour for an uber to show up (laughs) so we missed that we missed the final match between you two it's so fun and for uh, you guys wow a couple other ieb folks came out and hung out and so yeah more we'll do more of this stuff hopefully uh we can explore austin some more did you bank some money in addition to the title of being the best sand volleyball players not from austin yeah, I think Mike won a hundred bucks. I think I got like 50 or something like that, you know, cost of like 30 something to enter. So it's more for bragging rights. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sweet. That's awesome. 
All right. Um, well, Kevin, let, let's talk about this milestone. I mean, I feel like it's an amazing milestone knowing the industry. So why don't you unveil what uh, you told us kind of in the pre-discussion? Yeah, sure thing. So Spectora software scheduling business tools reached 5,000 users, clients as we call them a couple of days ago, which has always seemed like a distant kind of goal in the future, you know, kind of a, a thing we'd hit down the road. But yeah, super humbling. And anyone that's listening that that contributes to that, thank you. I feel like I almost keep track and know of each and every one. It's impossible. I don't think I actually do, but it feels like it. So it's 5,000 kids in the family. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That are all really great and deserve attention. That's absolutely amazing. I can't imagine all the work that's gone into that. And by my math, that's one fifth of the industry. I think there's roughly 25,000 home inspection companies in the country. So, you know, you own it. <laughs> and that's just fantastic. I can't even tell you how amazing that is. So, you know, it's such a combination of amazing early adopters and even like middle adopters and even, you know, people like you all that continue to make it better. But like our team, it's just a group of people that come to work every day that are invested, that are smart and they're working on themselves and they're driven much like I know Ruben has said to me about his team and any really high performing team in our industry. It's like, it sounds cliche, but you really do gush when you're just like, holy crap, these people bring it. And I feel like, you know, from day one, Mike and I, gosh, we wish we could just clone ourselves. And it's like, in the best way, it feels like it's happening where there's people that are doing it better than he and I did. Since I've been out of the field since like last March, I mean, I haven't really had a ton of Spectora time myself, but from, you know, all the interactions I've had with our, the other inspectors on the team and with Eric Hausman working on it and stuff, you know, I know that your customer support is awesome and you're always answering all the questions that we have, fixing little glitches here and there that happen, but just meeting your team in person at IV was amazing. You have such a great team of people with such great attitudes and they're so helpful and smart. So I was just kind of blown away by just not only you, but your whole company. Well, thank you. I guess it's reciprocated because I think that conference was so special just seeing those interactions and our industry is really niche and weird. And like most people don't ever find themselves going down this rabbit hole, the levels to the home inspection industry and then the software within that. And then IEB, it just all feels very weird to people when you tell them about it. So yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work, but it's it's like, kind of like anyone that's raised kids. It's like, you see the results as they're happening and then they continue to grow and they, they kind of emulate certain things. And it's, it's beautiful to see. You know what? Can I back up for a second for anybody that's listening? that didn't catch the earlier podcast we had Kevin on. Go back and listen to that. There's great info in that. But for people that are just listening now, can you give us a little background on like when you started Spectora and how quickly you've grown and where you are today? Yeah. So we launched January, 2017. So we're about four and a half years old. So the year prior to that, Mike and I were talking to home inspectors, conceptualizing this, um, interviewing anyone that would, that would let me buy them coffee to ask about their software. So I'd often drive to local home inspectors, like the Starbucks by their house, say like, Hey, can I buy you coffee? It'll just be 10 minutes of your time that whip out the laptop, show them a really janky version of Spectora and and then uh, (laughs) ask him about his software. And so, yeah, that whole year was just doing that whole hustle of finding out what pain points were. We were so naive because we didn't know the industry, which ended up being a positive. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because they would tap through their app and we'd say, oh, why does it take so many taps to do that? Wait, how many times do you do that thing in a given inspection? Okay. Let me add that up. Okay. So you're spending like three hours there and then you're going home and spending three hours. It just didn't make sense to us. So it was like, that's like Mm -hmm. the benefit, I think, of any uh, quote outsider in any industry. 
we dug deep and got a hell of a lot of no's, a lot of, Hey, good luck, kid. No one's ever going to change softwares. Cause it's really hard and it <laughs> takes forever and like templates and Ruben, <laughs> did you tell Kevin that? <laughs> <laughs> he just shook my hand and smiled and nodded. And that was it. I, I don't think I'm much older than Kevin. I don't think I would have called him kid. <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, you are 48 years in the inspection industry from the start of your career. So, <laughs> right, right. I liked Ruben so much, and I was like, "Oh man, this guy's kind of the content king." So I was like, "I don't even, I don't even care if they use us. I'm just happy to be talking to them." But yeah, launched in 17, kind of trickles of of new of customers that would try us out, people that were willing to take a chance on us in the early days, and and I would talk on the phone with them pretty much multiple times a day, like hours of just troubleshooting and going through, you know, an embarrassing product that just like breaking, not working. So people think you know bugs now are bad. Imagine back then, <laughs> and I'm just like, trust us, it's gonna get better. And we we literally would build features like real time for people. So like that early user would say, Hey, I need this checkbox to do this. And I'd be like, hold on, let me get back to you. Uh, I'll email you back in, you know, 10 minutes. And I'd be like, Mike, you got to build it like right now. Um, (laughs) You know, this guy, this guy's vocal. He's going to tell other people. And then Mike would literally call someone back and say, Hey, refresh your browser now. And then that guy would be like, Oh my God, you just saved me an hour a day. Um, So those stories are so fun to think about of like the hustle Mm -hmm. and kind of, I think every home, the beauty of, I think of our business, business is every home inspection company can relate to so many of those moments when you're just trying to win people's trust over when you're talking to those first agents and they're like, who the hell are you? Why would I trust you with something so important? So ended 2017 with about 200 users. We're still very small and unproven and new and being told it wouldn't work and no one would ever use cloud-based software and you know all the naysayers and then went from 200 to 1,000 and then 1,000 to 2,000 and then 2,000 to kind of where we're at now. So Wow. Kind of dizzying. I think a team of 23 now. Ruben, 5,000 home inspectors. What what do you think? That's crazy. That is an insane part of the market. I mean, I don't know how many there's supposed to be in the US. I've heard the number 20,000 thrown around. Do you know how many we're supposed to have, Kevin? I wish we had good data. I really do. You know, InterNACHI has 30,000 members, how many of which are actually active and in the business versus just doing their neighbor's house occasionally. And then what subset of that are tech savvy and kind of of the same mindset of, you know, as a, like a structured tech? I don't know. I, I'd guess 10 to 20,000. One of the documents I have access to is something called a business reference guide. We use it in a business brokerage. Business brokers use it all the time. When I look up home inspections, they list out 25,000 in change as how large the industry is in the United States. Okay. So that, that's where I pulled that number from, but 25,000, 20,000, 10,000, any way you slice it, five is a big chunk of that, that pie. So congratulations for walking in and providing a service that everybody clearly is gravitating towards. Thank you. It's surreal. And it's really cool to know and have friends that maybe have gotten a Spectora report that live in other cities, you know? So it's like something I always ask friends when they buy a house, like, oh yeah, I got a home. So I'm like, who did it? Let me see the report. Uh, You know, very odd question, very personal, odd question. (laughs) They're like, all right, creep. Like, So what does it look like on on a daily basis as far as upgrading or updating the software? I I assume this is a constant process, but what are the the greatest gadgets you're rolling out in the current version? Or I mean, what are you working on now that's going to really turn heads? Well, what a wonderful question. So I'm going to start with the day-to-day just kind of as almost a PSA in the fact that just like a house, 
you think there's only a couple main things to worry about. You're like, okay, as long as your HVAC and your, you know, your water heater and the appliances are working, it's all good. Right. It's like, no, there's so many little nooks and crannies and, and like there's, we're literally fixing something daily or adding something daily. So I think for everyone that, that thinks software is like build it. And then like, I'm just sitting on the beach somewhere. It's like, no, every single day there's issues. There's people that have one-off issues that we're putting band-aids on. You know, we have five developers about to hire two more because there's just so much work to do in terms of patching up bugs, adding features. We have three-week sprint cycles where we work on stuff every day to release it every three weeks. And so we do like a bug sprint cycle where despite, you know, people saying, oh my God, this I've been reporting this bug for three years. Why can't you just fix it? It kills me to hear. I hate, like, I literally will call people and say, like, let me apologize, first of all, if you're not feeling heard, because that sucks to tell someone something's wrong for years and not have it fixed. Or a feature that they've been requesting since day one. Some remember the days when we would do it in real time. And that's tough because it's like, hey, dude, we can't, we literally can't just change the whole software for all these huge companies. So you can't listen to 5,000 requests and answer them all immediately anymore. (laughs) I almost hesitate to tell people how many feature requests and bugs are we have at any given time. Cause it's like not their problem. Like I want to have empathy in their shoes for what they're experiencing. Right. But we get about a hundred a week on average, a hundred feature requests a week. And that can be on the low end. It just shows you the variation, right. Of like, you know, a guy in Utah versus what structure tech does could have a very different idea of what could speed up his day or what, how his presentation could be different. But I will say, I'll, I'll just share this. After we did the last podcast, I don't remember when that was. It was kind of after we had stopped hitting record, we were chatting about something. And I was like, you know, there is something I want to ask you about, Kevin, because I can't understand this. And it had something to do with the way you, you view photos and you download photos. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, I just do this. And I'm like, well, but if I do that, it does this. And you're like, um, it shouldn't do that. We're on this. And you must have had it fixed by 6 a.m. the next day. I mean, it was just, you saw that it didn't do what you knew it should. And man, you guys had that fixed so fast. It was like lightning speed. (laughs) I remember that. I could not believe it. That knocked my socks off. And the thing is, I don't tap around the app as much anymore, you know? And so it's just like, those are those little, that's like a little baseboard in a room that's like coming off, you know? And you walked me to it and it's like, Oh, wait, that's a big deal. That affects everybody. Yeah, let's like let's prioritize that. And fortunately, I have the, you know, the voice in 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 the company to say like, "Hey guys, let's prioritize this. Ruben's kind of a big deal for one." <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what George yeah. says all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get shirts that say he's a big deal. Ruben is a big deal. I would space. wear that. Uh, I got to go. See you guys. Um, <laughs> um, embarrassing you. I'm going to try and answer this concisely, but big things on the horizon. We basically have revamped the hood of Spectora. So to give everyone context, when we built in the first year, Mike and I did everything quick and dirty because it was survival. So we built things quickly with maybe technology that gets it out there, but maybe isn't stress tested for like, they say thousands of users. And so there's a lot of tech debt that was incurred. So a lot of what we've been doing this past six months is rebuilding the core tech underneath the hood, like the engine, like upgrading the Mm -hmm. engine basically to say, okay, if we double again, could we handle this many reports all syncing at once and data flying Mm -hmm. all different directions? So really it's so much work that no one will ever see, but it's the mm-hmm. stuff that in a year from now, when you're just humming along, 
you know, without issues, that's kind of what we're future proofing against. So it's very unsexy and very not seen, but it's part of the journey we took because if Mike and I built from the beginning, very careful and very future proofed, we would have moved way slower. We may not have had a, may, may not have been able to hire the team we've had, you know, grow to where we can grow start thinking about the next generation of tools at this point. So it was a trade-off. I, I Just a quick side note, Tessa, does this make you think about the education platform for home inspectors that we're looking at I was developing? Just, I was just going to type you a private message. That, Ruben. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just had to say it on the air. That's okay. <laughs> yep. That's <laughs> But outside of that, I think the fun, the more fun stuff to talk about new mobile app with a with a redesign and basically an upgraded framework that anyone that's ever had sync errors or discrepancies when they're doing you know multiple inspectors on a house, there was lots of stuff with our old tech that was hard to explain that that core technology wasn't being evolved and worked on to get to a point where we needed it to be to be super resilient. So we switched technologies on the mobile app and that's what we've been building. That's what's going into alpha and beta testing in the next month or two. So we've literally had two developers working full-time on that. And that is, an, that's again, tech debt. It's a, I wish it was just build it once and it's fine forever, but it's like all this money and effort has to go into just making it work <laughs> in the future, mm-hmm. which is the part I think most don't understand or probably, you know, they shouldn't understand. It's not anyone's you know, expertise. So new mobile app is going to be cool. I think it's going to enable us to bolt on and add features quicker, add, be more agile with adding stuff into the mobile app. So there'll be cool stuff like calendar views in there and, you know, accessibility stuff with just the design of it's going to be a lot like easier to see in the sun and certain screens and pages in there. So Eric will geek out over all of this. I promise you. I, so I th- he's working I, with James. Yeah. He, yeah. He's just, he's sitting there trembling. So excited listening to this. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, when you're optimizing a, a program like this, I imagine battery life on a device comes into play or does it? And it does. the original kind of engine under the hood, when you built it, did you consider battery life? And at what point did you realize, oh, we got to begin to optimize this so it's not killing the battery inside a phone in 25 minutes? That seems like a very non-technical question, but I bet you it's way more technical than anybody would, would ever think. Yeah. And it's one of those things we wouldn't experience just by testing it. So like when we built the original mobile app, we're clicking through it, making sure everything works. That's great. But did we ever spend two and a half hours, three times in a day without service, you know, with it just getting hammered on LTE? No. And so we would just listen to our early users, basically that say like, guys, this is killing my battery. What do you recommend? So early on, people had to get like the backup battery packs just to kind of uh, charge in between until we started to look at our sync process and make it more efficient. So every time you hit save or sync in the app. If it's literally scanning everything you've done, that's just processing power. That's going to drain it. Right. And so a lot of it was kind of going to our core kind of save sync logic and saying, okay, can we basically, if someone comes up and tells you a story, they've already told you the first two parts of the story. They don't need to repeat it to you. Just tell me the end. It was like telling the app to say, okay, just go to the end. We know you've already saved all this data. Just, just go to what, what's been touched recently since the last save to preserve battery life. So like that gets kind of technical, but that's a, one of those things that takes so much more thinking through and development than people think of just the sync logic of like what happens when you literally press that sync button 
all the little zeros and ones that it takes to get that information to the cloud down to the report sent to the agent. Mm-hmm. They open it. It's got to all show up. The fact that this can all happen in a day beyond mm-hmm. me. How do you sort through all the if then scenarios? Segmenting, basically throwing things into small containers to where it's like digestible. And we can look at one section of the app. We can look at just that code that does one thing that sends it somewhere else. So it's really distributing it out. One of the other cool features and things of the future though, came up at the IEB conference. You know, there was so much conversation about the future of the industry and how to empower companies to kind of control their own data and, you know, everything Mike and I talked about in the session. So I think future features around having home inspection companies kind of be the hub of the homeowner and kind of be the quarterback of all these services and products getting purchased huge concept, huge, you know, probably billion dollar kind of implications. That kind of stuff is what we're thinking about kind of trying to like plan for and trying to just see how we can enable that is a big deal to us. You see the home inspection software as being the the vault on a home in perpetuity. And I know there's other programs out there that are trying to store house data. So when from one owner to the next, it's not dropped or lost it. Do you see the software becoming a a vault of sorts? Good. Potentially. You know, the Carfax of homes or whatever is something, you know, Mike and I threw around five years ago and we were like, wow, why isn't that a thing? Mm -hmm. Obviously very difficult with how fragmented, you know, every, you know, home data is and different sources and everyone's trying to, to win that game. So to be determined if that ends up being a thing, it's something we pursue, or if it's more of, Hey, homeowner needs warranties, insurance, plumber, HVAC, um, do they get those via the home inspector, the home inspection company's recommendations and how that, how all that commerce flows. That part is interesting because what's a homeowner to do now, right? They ask the home inspector, home inspectors, I don't know, Google it, or, you know, I don't, I don't want to be on the hook for that. And then they go Google it. It goes somewhere else. The home inspection business is the center of a lot of potential relationships, which I find fascinating about this, this business right? Like you are the data finder. You are the, the aggregator of all this information and you can control a lot of, and control is a bad word, but you can move a lot of chips around on this board if you, if you want to. Yeah. I think we're in the early innings of kind of this industry getting more okay with that dynamic and then the sophistication of the the tools and the infrastructure. And I, I just think we're really excited to help be a part of that because the traditional industry has always shied away from that. It was like, hey, I'm just the guy that hands you the, the report and I'm out. And I think what a wasted opportunity, I think, when it comes to, you know, a center of influence. Like I don't think inspectors realize how much power they have. I think they do and the and the association seem to want to distance the inspectors from being able to make that decision. Maybe I'm wrong by saying that, but I think there's a lot of people who know they have a lot of power in this and, and power is the wrong word, but well, you, you, right. you get what I'm Influence. saying. Yeah. There's right. a lot of influence in here because you are a trusted third party and the client turns to you immediately and says, what would you do? And you're like, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm finding facts right now. I'm, I'm collecting data. I'll tell you right. at the end, I'll give you my whole opinion at the end. Right now, mm-hmm. it's just a partial opinion. What's on the horizon for all of this is really mind boggling. Yeah. Tessa, what were some of your takeaways from that? Cause, uh, I think it blew some people's minds at the conference that had never thought about it in this way. You know, I guess that was kind of a whole new world I hadn't really spent too much time thinking about, you know, just the other opportunities that there are. 
in this industry that we haven't, you know, taken advantage of. We've got such a narrow view of like what we do. It's just, you know, our, our head is in kind of like this little bubble focusing on just delivering an inspection report and, you know, delivering the facts and all of that. But there's just really so much more to it that it could be. One of the biggest takeaways, just like processing this, like for days after the conference, is just like how our industry is changing and will continue to change. And, you know, who knows what the market's going to be like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, is the inventory going to increase? Is it going to decrease? What kind of buyers are going to be out there? And really starting to kind of think about the future of this industry and, and where there would be a place for us. And I mean, as I, you know, as I was kind of thinking about it, it's like, you know, um, I don't think we'll have like a guy in a tool belt who walks through a property and like, clicks on all these things and writes a report for a house in another 20 years, 30 years, it's going to change completely. So it was just really kind of, I think it was fun at that conference being able to just brainstorm with other people in the industry from like the tech side, from the marketing side, from the actual, you know, all these different perspectives and think about these potential changes that are coming down the road. That's not a very specific answer. That's very broad, but, but it, it was a fun exercise that we did, you know, I think one of those last days of the conference. I mean, it's part of IEB's role is leading these conversations, you know, and I think yeah. thought leaders in the industry, like the, the biggest companies, the IEBs, we see ourselves as being in that, in that circle of saying like, let's, let's throw things out there. Cause we have to be prepared. Like sometimes it's, it's ridiculous, you know, hypotheses that may or may not play out, but yeah. We can't get blindsided because all of our livelihoods are dependent on this industry growing and thriving, not shrinking. And I think part of the risk is that it, there's uh, transactions getting sucked out currently by the open doors of the world, by, you know, by the companies that are taking away business. And I don't think any of us want that. Yeah. If a human has a medical record that's attached to them permanently, it feels like a house in a way should, and a home inspector might come in and just play a part in updating that medical record of the house, mm-hmm. so to speak. And the whole real estate transaction I find very interesting because it's all based on trust. And the person you're trying to trust is the person who wants the most from what they're selling. And you're hoping that everything you're being told is exactly the way it happened while they were in this house. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, it'd be nice to know the actual material. Material's a wrong word. Mm-hmm. The, it would be nice to know the actual repairs and the schedules that repairs were made and that kind of thing over time. It just feels like a fair thing for someone who's going to put down a lot of money on an asset that should perform at a certain level. I love a feature where that's the case, where the, the people doing the work can plug in and kind of document what happened, exactly what would the the, the level of service or the the standard of whatever they're doing. And then that's kind of, this just like almost unbiased record is how it should be. Yep. We're a long way from that. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot at stake, you know, for, for people to put lipstick on a pig, as they say. So, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Ruben, what do you think about all this? I see you nodding over there and thinking, I see the wheels turning. You know, <laughs> something that I've been hearing from IEB for a while is that a potential future for the role of the home inspector is where the the smallest amount of money any home inspection company is going to make is going to be on the home inspection itself. And it's almost like you're really not even going to make money on the home inspection. Even the idea that a home inspection is going to be a loss leader and that really the place where you're going to be make money, I don't even want to say this out loud because it just, it bugs me 
maybe I'm not saying it right, but the thought that I've heard, this idea that I've heard is that it's almost like the biggest way that you're going to make money is by controlling data. And what I end up hearing is that it's like selling your client's data. And that's one thing that just, oh, it, it, it drives me nuts. I don't like the idea of that at all. We, we have never dabbled in that even. So I, I, I hope that's not where things are going, but maybe a nicer way of putting it. And, and maybe, maybe somebody who's listening to this and is like, no, that's wrong. It, they might say it's, it's just a matter of controlling services and making more services available to a homeowner, being helpful and being a conduit for these services that people need. It's like, all right, you need a plumber, work through me to get that. And it's, it's lead development that's being funneled through the home inspector. I've heard people say that this very well could be the future of home inspection companies. I think you just nailed that. Yeah. I think you just worded that beautifully because that's, it's funny you say that because everyone throws out the, the word data and control and it's such heavy, it's heavy phrase. And I don't, I never yeah. word it that way when I'm like, well, if you're just being helpful, referring someone to a trusted partner who they may or may not have found otherwise, that feels pretty ethical and good to me. You know, it just right. from like, a, if I'm literally coming in blind and I'm like, oh, so you know, an HVAC company that's five-star Google, hundreds of reviews, that's really good. I'd rather you tell me to go use them than I could just not search. Like I can just yeah. go right to them. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what we do today. We already do that. But then the idea of monetizing that where I get a piece of that just feels a little bit unethical or sneaky to me. And that's, that's the part that I have a tough time getting over. And Bill and I have probably discussed this for hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the right answer is here. I think the right answer is transparency. If you tell people what your relationships are, it's up to them to make their own decision. But one thing that a home inspector can do at a very high level is be a communicator between the homeowner and this other vendor who needs to provide a service. And so instead of you telling the homeowner, oh, go call this company, you can say, give them this information. This is what I found. They can read what a homeowner didn't try to explain to them on the phone and they can understand quickly what problems they're coming out to resolve. And it feels like there's a lot more trust in that than there would be in just the homeowner calling a vendor. They come in and they look around and they're like, well, and it, it just seems to cascade from this is what's wrong to this is what we could do. And what's wrong costs X and what we could do costs X times four. And then now you're in this, this place where people lose trust. And so I think home inspectors can be conduits to great communication and relationships between vendors and homeowners because they wrote up the comment or the problem and they gave it over and somebody was able to almost diagnose without having to be in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great debate. One other thought I want to share on this, this thought popped into my head as I was talking and I didn't want to sidetrack the one, the one way I was going. But one other thought is when I was joking about the home inspection being a loss leader is that at Structure Tech, our home inspections are almost loss leaders. Like if we didn't have ancillary services such as radon, sewer inspections, chimney inspections, our company would be in the red. (laughs) Yeah. 
we would lose money. And part of it is that we just started out paying our home inspectors such a high commission split at Structure Tech that it's not really sustainable if we're just doing home inspections. Thankfully, we have a bunch of other services, but it makes me think of, you know, like Best Buy selling a laptop. They don't make any money on the laptop. They only make money if you buy, you know, a protection plan and cables and this, that, and the other. It's it's the only way that that business works. And most home inspection companies don't have this problem, but we do. <laughs> great problems, great problems to have. On the monetization thing, I'm, I want to dig into that because I'm so fascinated by it. Just having worked at Home Advisor, right, and seeing the value of leads and lead generation and what contractors often pay for different kinds of leads. So. Ruben, is it the, is it because it's such a local kind of personal thing? It's like a company that could be down the street from you all, or it's someone that you know, or is it just the fact that you don't want there to ever be an illusion of maybe the home buyer saying, oh, they're, they're getting a kickback. That's exactly it. It bugs me when you hear about kickbacks, just that word. The bad word is the hairs on my neck. The bad word. Yeah. Referral fee. Is that better? Eh, I hear kickback. (laughs) It's like, I mean, there's such a clear line in this business where we could never even consider giving referral fees to real estate agents. But then why would it be okay for other service providers that we recommend to give us a referral fee? How is this any different? That's what I can't get past. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like monetizing the trust, almost the relationship. That is Um, a great way of putting it, Kevin. Yes. Yeah. And some people say, you know, I built up 20 years of having great reputation and service and these companies would pay for these leads at home advisor. So they, you know, it's got to come from somewhere and others say no, you know, that it's not Hmm. worth it. And, you know, it's not something that should be there. So it's fascinating, you know, because like Hmm. in the warranties and insurance space, everyone seems to be okay with it. And so it's interesting to me how if it's like, say, Progressive or State Farm, if they were going to Google it and get that insurance anyway, would it have been okay if you were like, oh, yeah, you can just get a quote here. I have a relationship with this insurance company. Everyone hates insurance companies. <laughs> Is it okay to get a referral fee from them? That's a fascinating question. That Those are the things we're asking home inspectors. I just want to know. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think we have an answer to this. As, as we're discussing this, I remember the first time I did your podcast, Kevin, before we even had a podcast, I remember in the middle of it, you were telling me, I always like to think of the title at some point during the podcast. And uh, you announced the title of my podcast during it. And I was like, that's genius. And I think I just figured out the title of it. <laughs> we're going to say our kickbacks <laughs> ethical. <laughs> I think that's a, a good question. The hard part is me always typing down the nugget that someone drops when I'm like, oh, that's the title. I got to type this out. (laughs) But if people get a fair price for whatever repair and whoever did the repair did a great job and they stand behind their work, I don't see the problem with these kinds of relationships. Because if advertising is paid to an agency, let's say, or a referral fee is paid to a trusted source, it's still money that's going out of that vendor's pocket. So it's not like the price of the service goes up. They're going to spend that money either way. Yeah, it's Fair point. It's, it's being paid there or it's being paid to a salesperson. Right. Just feels yeah. less coyly if it goes to a salesperson. Is that what you're we've, saying? We've kicked that around, yeah, Bill. That's true. We've kicked around. There's actually a few inspectors on our network already that are selling advertising space. In the, at the end of their reports, they created a section for partners. And so then you're right. That exchange of commerce is like, so it's viewed different 
but it's still an exchange of money. So it's, it's interesting to say like preferred partners as a last section in the Spectora report. What if you allowed, you know, two of each category to be there? They're paying to be on your park bench, kind of. Um, it's an interesting thought. And then the other side of that, it's like real estate agents will do that all the time. They'll, they will have preferred partners and the home inspectors have to pay a boatload of money oh, yeah. to be right. a be that list. quote unquote preferred partner. Why are they preferred? Oh, because they write us a gigantic check. <laughs> That that's yeah. the transparency thing, Bill, right? So it's like, if the transparency yeah. is like, we partner with this HVAC company because they're the best in town. Right. To and me, they give us a big check. And that, that's exactly. <laughs> and they're willing to advertise with us because they know we attract the best in town, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a, the devil's in the details, I think, with all this stuff. These relationships exist all over throughout all kinds of different industries and some we accept without a problem and some we have these big problems with and I don't understand why. I think of home inspections as home inspectors can't work on homes they inspect. Yet I go to the auto mechanic and if they find something wrong with my car, they fix it. I don't drive <laughs> off to somebody else to fix it. So, fair point. <laughs> yeah. Very fair. I just picked up my car from the mechanic and I was thinking about this dynamic and I was explaining it to my daughter who's 14. And I'm like, I was just testing her knowledge where I'm just like, let's talk about incentives for a minute. So like, do you see any issue with the person calling out the problem also being the one to fix it, especially coming out of a pandemic when people weren't driving? So it was a fun conversation. Right. It gets you thinking. And, and those are fun conversations with young people because that just, it hasn't entered their mind yet. Right. I've got a 17 year old daughter and we've kind of, we've scratched the surface on some of these more adult conversations sometimes. And I really, really enjoy it. But. And is it our place as an industry to care what the home buyer is going to do anyway? Like you said, if they go to Yelp and they get a ter- they have a terrible experience, is it still like, yep, I was done with them when I handed them the report or do we know we can find a better relationship or if they go to a home advisor and just have a terrible experience? You know, because like they're going to go find that flooring company one way or another. That's exactly right. You nailed it. You know, if we can get somebody there quicker, faster, more affordably, and there's more trust in the whole system, I love that. But we could debate this all day long. We've been on this podcast now for, I don't know, 45 minutes. We should probably consider wrapping things up here pretty soon. But Tess, <laughs> I know you've got something to say yeah. there. You're just about to. Oh, no, I was just, I was just laughing. because so I'm like, Ruben, you could be full-time just a vetting service looking for good, good quality companies to partner with because I know you love doing that. Didn't you just vet about 10 different HVAC companies for your own house? I spend a fair amount of time vetting people to see if I even want them on our list or not. Absolutely. Part of me spend a ton of time doing this. Ruben, part of me thinks for the trust and the the amazing company and the people and everything that's gone into everything that Structure Tech is, part of me is like, hell yeah, Ruben, Ruben's company should get paid for that, for that trust that transfers to these other companies. I could be swayed either way. I love debating both sides. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad we don't have to decide this today. (laughs) They're fun conversations to have. (laughs) So we noted at the beginning of our podcast that that Spectora has, has crossed the 5,000, you know, home inspection company mark. But one thing we at Structure Talk have crossed the small milestone ourselves. This is podcast episode number 100. So we are... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, guys. So cool. <laughs> and, and what thank better you, person to have on. <laughs> 
thank you for spending the time with us. Couldn't think of a funner person to have a conversation with over uh, episode 100. So thanks for joining us. We should put a wrap on this. You have been listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, alongside Tessa Murray, Ruben Saltzman. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. For more information on how we can provide you with the right information about your home before you buy or sell, contact us at StructureTech.com.